Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. It was another busy week at the U.S. Supreme Court as the justices near the end of their term. The court handed down eight opinions, including in the red state's attempt to foil the Biden administration's immigration policies. But Greg, before we get to that, the biggest news about the justices this week once again came from outside 1st Street and in the form of reporting about alleged ethics abuses. So um, this time the target was Justice Samuel Alito, who has so far found himself in dissent more times than I would have anticipated this term. So not a great term for him so far. Greg, what's going on now? Where does one start, Kimberly? Um, (laughs) Maybe start with, you know, actually the place that produced this news originally was the Wall Street Journal editorial page because Justice Alito wrote a, and I put this in quote, op-ed that was actually his response to the ProPublica article that had not yet been published, in which he gave a very lawyerly defense of everything that he had done. But the big picture is ProPublica discovered, learned that uh, in 2008, Justice Alito went on a very nice fishing trip to Alaska aboard a private plane owned by one Paul Singer, who is a hedge fund manager who just happened to have business both around that time and in the future before the Supreme Court. And Justice Alito uh, did not report any of that on his financial disclosure reports. And so it bears a lot of similarities to the stories that ProPublica has written, or at least the first one, ProPublica wrote about Justice Clarence Thomas and uh, the trips that he took, uh, paid for by Republican megadonor Harlan Crow. Some potentially important differences in them, including the fact that Paul Singer did have business at the Supreme Court. But apparently this sort of stuff is just going to keep on coming, Kimberly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you said that the major difference was that um, Singer had business before the court, but I think you're sort of downplaying that a little bit. In one of the cases, um, his hedge fund received potentially $2 billion from a case in which Justice Alito sided with the majority. It was a lopsided majority. It wasn't like he was the swing vote. But um, as far as optics go, that makes it um, definitely a bigger deal, at least in my view. Yeah. And one of the things that Justice Alito said that I think some folks had a hard time swallowing was that he didn't know Paul Singer was involved in these cases. Um, his name was not on in the briefs that he saw his name was he was not a, a party. It was his his hedge fund. Um, and, you know, that's that's true. But, you know, I went back and I looked just at my own stories and I had like a dozen stories in which I mentioned that Paul Singer was involved in these cases. Other news outlets very prominent in talking about his role there. Uh, so it's possible that Justice Alito didn't know, but it's also pretty clear that he didn't, uh, you, you know, must not have uh, worked very hard to figure out whether there might have been a conflict in, in that case. Right. You mentioned that Justice Alito's um quote unquote op-ed was very lawyerly. And I found this part of it to be um, extremely lawyer lawyerly and that he said he didn't know that Singer was involved in this litigation and then sort of turned to the fact that these cases involved um, limited liability companies companies or limited liability partnerships, and that in those cases in particular, it would be impossible for the justices to sort of sort through SEC filings to find out who is involved. So not that he didn't do that in this case, but in every case that would be totally um, unimaginable. So one thing I wanted to ask you about 
Greg, is Justice Alito has been very aggressive in pushing back on criticism of the court. We saw, I mean, it was surprising to me at the time, but a while back he sort of gave this speech about uh, criticism of the shadow docket that, uh, you know, I, again, was kind of surprised by some of the language that he used. Uh, Last summer he had that speech about religious liberty, And, you know, recently, again, with The Wall Street Journal, he gave an interview about the Dobbs leaker saying he thought he really knew who it was and that, you know, members of the bar should really be backing up the court um, more than they have been. And now this. What's going on with Justice Alito? That's a a good question. (laughs) You know, he is obviously uh, very frustrated, feels that the court is being and, uh, you know, he is being and, and, uh, you know, the court's conservative wing are being unfairly attacked. He perhaps got into that stage in his career where he decided he doesn't want to just, you know, take it passively. Um, you know, in the the interview that he mentioned with the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial page, he said something to the effect of, you know, it used to be that members of the Supreme Court bar would come to the mm-hmm. defense of the court and they're not doing that anymore. So mm-hmm. uh, apparently he feels like he has to do it because folks on the outside aren't defending him. It just seems surprising to me that it's not like we haven't heard from the other justices. They have a lot to say, you know, particularly we've heard a, a little bit from the chief justice and some from Kavanaugh and even some things from Justice Thomas, I guess, but it just seems like Justice Alito seems to be the one putting him out, himself out there the most. Yeah, very, very, very much so. Um, obviously, you know, some other members of the conservative wing are uh, much more junior and and maybe figure they they uh, you know want to hold their fire at least for now. But um, yeah, he's he's certainly out there. I will just say one thing, just to kind of look ahead. There is a Paul Singer related case uh, cert petition that is pending at the court. It's scheduled for the the long conference when the justices come back in late September, uh, and it will be interesting to see whether Justice Alito recuses himself from that case. And whether or not he sort of explains why he recuses, because we saw in the justices sort of statement of ethical principles um, that they said sometimes it will be appropriate for the justices to give a short explanation. And Justice Kagan has done that a couple of times, sort of just writing a, a sentence about, you know, citing to the the reason why she might be um, recusing. But Justice Alito did not in at least one case. And so it'd be interesting to see, one, if he recuses, and two, if he sort of follows those guidelines. All right, Greg, should we turn to the court's more regular programming? <laughs> yes. Now, I, I understand you have read every word of all eight of these opinions and and mm-hmm. double-check mm-hmm. the sites to make sure that they're, they're mm-hmm. accurate. Mm-hmm. I have, yes. Um, so let's go through each citation of all eights. Um, no. No, uh, let's in, let's not do that. Can, it, can I, before we get into the main event, can I just say, mention one citation, which is by far the best citation I've seen in the court this year? <laughs> I know what you're going to say, and um, I have actually checked this citation. H- have Greg. you? I do know this one's on Have point. You? Yes, Justice Jackson. She was making the point that she was trying to say the court says two things, and you know one thing doesn't follow from the other. And she cited the great children's book. If you if you give a mouse a cookie, I, you've probably gone back to check to see if anybody else has ever cited that. I I have not yet. <laughs> I haven't gone back, but um, I think that was a reference in uh, Coinbase, right? A, yes, a decision yes, it was. that you You're covered, right. Greg. <laughs> Anyway, should we talk talk about the biggest decision of the uh, of the week, or what I think most people would say is the biggest decision? Yeah, this is also a case that you covered, and as I hinted at the top of the episode, um, this involves the Biden administration's immigration policies. 
Um, but the decision wasn't actually about that. It was about the technical issue of standing, which we all love here on Cases and Controversies. So, Greg, tell us what's going on in U.S. v. Texas. Our producer, David, is still shaking his head over there. <laughs> in approval, I, I imagine. <laughs> let, me, let me just give a small amount of ba- backdrop to say this is about the fact that there's a law out there that says the executive branch shall detain a large number of undocumented immigrants. And there is a practical problem that there is not anywhere near the capacity to detain all these or roughly 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country. So this is a question about how the administration is going to, you know, allocate its resources. And uh, under the Trump administration, the policy was basically we're going after everybody. We're not going to prioritize people. The Biden administration was trying to shift the policy to say we're going to focus on the most dangerous people and people who just crossed the border very recently. And a federal appeals court, the Fifth Circuit, very conservative, had said, nope, you can't change the policy. You're in violation of federal immigration law. This is a lawsuit by by Texas and Louisiana. And last summer, the Supreme Court refused to stay that decision. So the Biden administration has been stuck with this Trump administration policy up until now. And then today, uh, we're recording this on on Friday, today the Supreme Court comes out in an eight to one opinion, says Texas and Louisiana do not have standing to to challenge this policy. This case, we, we judges have no role here. The opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, basically said this is like prosecutorial discretion. We, uh, This is not the kind of thing where somebody from the outside can come in and say, you should be arresting more people, you should be prosecuting more people. Um, this is not something courts have traditionally uh, handled. It's not something our, our precedents say we can handle, and therefore uh, you cannot sue. Three of the conservative justices, Gorsuch, Barrett, Thomas, had a different rationale, which I, in deference to David, I won't go into. And the one and only dissenter was Justice Sam Alito. Oh, man. It's a rough time for him. Rough, man. Yeah, who, who basically said, you know, hey, you're letting the, you know, we have Congress saying one thing, the executive saying another thing, and you're basically saying the executive always wins. And that's that's a problem. Uh, you know, you're, you're forcing Congress to resort to, to uh, you know, measures that, that it may not want to resort to. We should be here to, to referee that sort of thing. So um, I win for the, the, the Biden administration. Uh, you know, I'm not sure everybody would have predicted this. I'm not sure the argument was was crystal clear, but I'm sure at the White House and the Justice Department, they're very happy to take it. Right. A win on the bottom line, at least. Um, I want to ask you what this this case means for the student loan cases, if anything at all, because both um, are, are dealing with this question of standing. But on your point about the stay, I mean, that that really reminds me of the stay in Allen versus Milligan, um, where the the Supreme Court kind of put the brakes on a lower court ruling that said um, that Alabama had to redraw districts that that probably would have favored Democrats in the midterm elections. Um, but then when the ruling came out, they agreed with that that court that they had put on hold, and and likely those maps will now be changed um, to favor Democrats. And it's uh, really sort of hits home for me the importance of the shadow docket. Yeah. And I will say in the, the, the Allen versus Milligan case, there we can kind of explain what happened because Justice Kavanaugh told us what happened, which was that, you know, he didn't want the, the this 
new map that would have two majority black districts. He thought it was too close to the election for federal courts to be imposing that sort of thing. That's this notion that's called the Purcell Doctrine. But he said, it's not a ruling. I'm not ruling on the merits. And it turns out when he got to the merits of the case, he cast the deciding vote to go in the other direction. In this case, in the immigration case, we didn't really get an explanation for for, for the stay. Mm-hmm. So um, it's we can speculate what was going on there, but it's, it's really just speculation. And more justices sh- uh, shifted. In, it was five to four. The court said, right. you got to keep that Trump administration policy. And, and now um, I'm going to get my math wrong. I guess three of those justices, three of those justices flipped to the other side for, to produce this eight to one decision. Well, Greg, speaking of speculation, uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you speculate what, if anything, this means uh, for those student loan cases which are pending? And, and again, this is a challenge to the Biden administration's policy to forgive student loans. That is a pair of cases that are up at the Supreme Court. Um, the issue in both of those cases also largely revolve around standing. Did we learn anything anything there where we can read the tea leaves? You know, I, I've seen some people say on on Twitter that it it bodes well for the student loan policy. I'm not sure. Um, you know, these are very different theories of standing. Mm-hmm. And a big part of Justice Kavanaugh's opinion in the immigration case was this notion that what we're talking about here is basically prosecutorial discretion. And this is something where there's really not a place for the the courts to, to say you should be doing, uh, you know, arresting more people. And, and, you know, the student loan case is a very, very different situation. It's a question of here's some statutory language. And, you know, did you violate that statutory language with this loan forgiveness program? The theory of standing there is also different. The states are focused heavily on this loan servicer that is, you know, has a connection to the Missouri State Treasury. And they say the loan servicer is going to take a hit. And that means that the Missouri State Treasury might take a hit. That's a case that, uh, you know, I'll be ready for either way. Well, I'll let you uh, sort of not take a position because when you asked me this question last week about the Supreme Court's ruling in Holleen versus Bracken, that case about the Indian Child Welfare Act um, and the court's sort of standing ruling there, I said the same thing. So I guess I guess I'll let you pass on that one, Greg. So, Kimberly, in these eight opinions that, uh, as I said, you've read all so carefully, um, anything else? What, what jumped out at you? Yeah, I mean, I think that there there are a couple of opinions that got a lot of attention. There's one, Joan versus Hendricks, um, in which the court really made it almost impossible for an individual who are claiming that they are innocent to get out of jail. Um, so that one's uh, causing a lot of ruckus um, out in the world. And then there's another one, um, Arizona versus Navajo Nation, dealing with water rights um, in the Southwest, which, of course, is a very precious commodity. That case was a 5-4 case Against the, against the tribe seeking help from the federal government here. All of those and the other cases that the Supreme Court decided are on our website, news.bloomberglaw.com, so listeners should head there if they want. By my count, Greg, we've got 10 opinions left in what I know you are hoping is the last week of the Supreme Court term. So uh, you think we'll get them all? Uh, it's not just that I'm hoping, Kimberly. It will be so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we will get them all. I think we will get them all. Other than the pandemic year, um, the Supreme Court 
has not, in my time covering the court, going back to 1998, gone into Fourth of July week. That may be in deference to my own vacation plans. Mm-hmm, More likely, mm-hmm. it is it is that in deference to their own vacation plans. But no, I, every indication is that we will finish up next week and and very much with a flurry. All right. And um, I just like to point out at every opportunity that I can that Greg has been covering the Supreme Court since I was in high school. Um, so uh, that makes you uniquely qualified to uh, tell us about what's left on. <laughs> Use that ancient knowledge. Um, use your old brain to tell us what's left. What should we be looking out for in this in this last week? I, I just want to point out that Kimberly has not said how old she was when she graduated from high school. I'm a I am a millennial, Greg. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, I I will set, set up the set up the last week. Uh, you know, it, it has been a term that the biggest cases so far have gone the liberals' direction. And it's, you know, including the immigration case, the Indian Child Welfare Act case that you mentioned, the the Voting Rights Act case that uh, involving the Alabama voting districts that, that we discussed briefly, have all gone the liberals' way. The biggest cases, I think, most people would say, have yet to come. The affirmative action case, Joe Biden's student loan relief, the independent state legislature theory case, uh, and also the case involving the Colorado web designer who doesn't want to make sites for same-sex uh, weddings. So I think that the story of this term has yet to be yet to be written. It's going to be really interesting to see if, if the, the trend that we sort of see like we're seeing so far with the court pulling back, whether that, that can continue. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up this week's episode. We'll be following along with all that, and listeners can too at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law. We're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive. They can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right. This can't be fair. How can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.